children of all ages. I want to thank you all for joining us here on Season 1, Episode 11, 0111 of the Wit and Whiskey cast. I am uh, Marcus Eddie Jr., joined as always by my co-host DJ Gagnon. Hey, uh. And today we're going to be doing one of our another ever-popular hot take episodes. We're going to be throwing some fire regarding the printed word, books, novels, publications, if you will. We're going to give you our most overrated and our most underrated. So prepare to be outraged and educated. That was some pretty good alliteration there. I'm on a roll today. Nice. (laughs) Okay, I'm getting a little goofy already. So what did you do this week, DJ? Save this friggin' episode already. We're, what, a minute and a half in. (laughs) It was kind of hellacious last week at work. Just a lot of support issues, production problems. (laughs) There wasn't a lot of fun things last week. But I did get to do uh, one really fun thing, which was I, at the, at the beginning of the pandemic this year, I reached out to a mutual friend of Mark and I's uh, and commissioned a little logo for all the cocktail experiments I've been doing. And uh, I just got back uh, actual like physical bottle labels with that logo on it. So... I've, I'm branded now, Potions by Rabbit. It's a lot of fun. Uh, so I've, I've, I tagged all of my bottles with the new new bottle label this week, and, and they look weirdly official in Snaptop bottles now, so that that's pretty cool. They look damn good. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it's always been a dream of mine to have something branded, and, and uh, our buddy uh, really just knocked it out of the park. So... Uh, shout out to she Emily. Really she she Emily is amazing. She's a great artist. Uh, everybody should know about her because uh, she does great stuff. So uh, I'm gonna throw some stuff out on our Instagram. Kind of share some of the bottles I've been working with. Maybe do a little uh, blog post in the next month or so around you know my process and what it looks like and and all that stuff. But that's been fun. What about you, man? What'd you get up to this week? This week was crazy busy for a lot of different reasons, uh, but we were able to, you know, go out and uh, I got to see the old man and we took the cars out, he took the dart out, I took the roadster out. It's always a good time. Um, and it was the mother-in-law's birthday on Saturday, so, you know, went up there, had some pizza, hung out with her a little bit. But other than that, you know, it's been pretty much work, work, work. Doing a little research uh, for another project. Uh, been doing some reading on uh, profanity and obscenity and basically the history there within. Um, you have to do research on obscenities? I know, I know. I was shocked too. Um, <laughs> but there's something quite enjoyable about you know reading some of the uh, graffiti of Pompeii in the original Latin and you know, basically hearing some of the wonderful slurs that the Romans had that, while they translate well to English, don't really make much sense uh, in our minds. You know, it just was quite enjoyable. So a few late nights just spent reading just utterly, utterly profane Latin, and it's been most enjoyable. Nice. Did you get into any of the, like, Shakespearean insults and, and profanities? We're not there, at least I'm not there yet. We're trying to divide it up. It's myself and two other individuals who are working on this for a project. And we're trying to divide the time frame up. I may actually take some more Victorian era profanities, since that is one of my other favorite uh, time frames. But 
Uh, the book I have, which, shameless plug, it's called Holy Shit, A Brief History of Obscenity, is, uh, you can pick it up on Amazon. I think it's like $15 new. It's a fantastic read. And they break, each chapter has a different time period. So you can do ancient Rome, you could do biblical times, you could do the Renaissance, uh, 18th century, 19th century, all the way up to modern times. And they're, you know, little mini, you know, but they're about the length of a journal entry or a short story. They're all like 65 to 85 pages each, each chapter. So it's something good to bang out in one night and get all jazzed up about cursing and then go to sleep. That's amazing. I'm still like baffled by you needing to do any sort of research around this, but you know. Well, a good historian always does his research. And remember, kiddies, if you steal from one person, it's profanity. If you steal from many people, it's research. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) So, okay, speaking of... I don't have a segue there. I was going to say... (laughs) Actually, no. You know what? I do have a segue there. Speaking of stealing, I'm going to steal the whiskey thing. I'm going to go first because I know you got a bomb you're going to drop on all of us. Nice. And I don't. So I'm going to go first and steal your mojo. (laughs) So I decided, in the spirit of your labels in your nice bottles, actually, I decided to channel my inner rabbit and experiment. No. And Yes, I did. And the real reason, see, that's, that's a nice little cover story, but the real reason is actually much sadder, if we're being honest. I've been so busy these last two weeks, I haven't been able to go to the liquor store. That is sad. And here in Pennsylvania... That's pretty much the only way you can get alcohol is going to our state-run monopoly and paying far too much for it. Literally like 98.5% of all sales occur through the corrupt system. So I haven't had a chance to go there because, you know, God forbid that their hours and or locations would be convenient. So I was kind of scrambling to see what I have around the house to make something up. And so I've come up with something today that I call the stag party. <laughs> it is a double shot of Red Stag, uh, which is cherry-flavored bourbon. It is a double shot of Larceny. Uh, it is a double shot of Grenadine, because, you know, it wasn't red enough for my tastes. <laughs> and then I filled the rest of a Tom Collins glass up with ginger ale to try to take some of the sweetness out of it. Yeah, because ginger ale's not sweet. Well, it's not compared to everything else that's thrown in there. (laughs) Um, I actually went looking. If I make this again, I want to actually put a spoonful of cinnamon in it. That was the original plan. The wife hid the cinnamon. I can't find it. (laughs) We were literally arguing just before we went on air. She's like, it's in that cupboard. I'm like, no, 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 it isn't. But if I make this again, I want to throw, you know, a little teaspoon of cinnamon in there just, again, to give it a little bit more heat and take some of the sweetness out of it. It's actually not terrible. It kind of tastes like uh, that cherry, cranberry, fizzy holiday ginger ale that they put out for, like, two weeks before Christmas. Oh, I love that stuff. It tastes like that, but just with whiskey at the end. So, overall, I'll rate this M for meh, but... (laughs) It's not bad. I've had worse. I've made worse. Well, give it an out of ten. Five and a half, six. That's pretty good. Uh, I think that's it's up drinkable. There. I think that's up there with the Warheads beer you rated. Well, it depends on the flavor, but yes, uh, overall, yes. 
this didn't crush my childhood into a million pieces, so I guess this slightly gets the edge. That's fair. Now, Mark, does this count as your second Tale from the Well? I suppose theoretically, because Red Stag is pretty well. Yeah, I mean, Larceny is great, but, I mean, Red Stag... Yeah, Red Stag and store brand Grenadine is pretty well. Interesting. So our second tale from the well, folks, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, so I, I'm up 2-0. you got to catch up. I do. Mr. I haven't been able to bring myself to, to... Every time I go, it's like Jack Daniel's apple, and I'm like, ah, oh, I can't. That's such a big bottle. <laughs> that is such a big bottle. But again, I must stress, and you're all going to... All our dear listeners are going to sit here and roll their eyes... But much like the bottle of Dewar's, the bottle of Red Stag was actually a gift. <laughs> and I'm rolling was, my eyes. <laughs> well, no, it was funny. It actually uh, it was for the Super Bowl last year. Uh, a good friend of mine, Father Jack, who is neither a priest nor actually named Jack, but that's a whole other story for another time. Uh, <laughs> but a good buddy of mine, Father Jack, came over for the Super Bowl and brought a bottle of Red Stag because we were going to do shots, and we never did because... We have too much respect for ourselves to just sit there and pound a bottle of Red Stag. <laughs> so it's been sitting in my freezer during this entire pandemic. And I had to sort of hammer it out of the back of the freezer. You know, it gets the ice and the frost. On it. But it's good and cold, though. So it's amazing. You know, but my right hand to God, I'm not going out and actively purchasing these. This was literally an experimentation with all the bottles that have been left at my house from parties over the years. Which, if you've never done that, folks, you really need to at least once or twice in your life. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to dip into the well a little bit more once we hit the holidays, because I really want to find just some, like, truly foul, like, Christmas-flavored whiskey. Uh, I, I don't even know what that would be. I'm just waiting for, like, November to get here. Uh, and then I'm going to do, like, two or three episodes where I'm just drinking something that's that's rare and maybe not wonderful, but we'll see. Yeah. So, all right. Give it, you know, you save the intro, now save the reviews. You're drinking something good. What is it? All right. So, I went out. Uh, I really wanted to um, find something interesting this week. And I, I looked in the well. I couldn't find anything. I, I just, th- there was nothing that was really appealing. I, I, I don't know about you, man, but like Jack Daniel's peach doesn't really sound mm. like something I want to drink. No, 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 no offense to any Jack fans out there, but uh, it's just not something I want to drink today. So I grabbed uh, a bottle of <sighs> Dead Rabbit Irish Whiskey. No, you didn't. I did. <laughs> so, Oh, my Lord. I had to get this because one of my favorite cocktail books uh, is put out by the Dead Rabbit Grog and Grocery Bar in... Uh, Grocery and Grog. Dead Rabbit Grocery and Grog Bar in New York City. It's a high-end cocktail bar. It's fairly well-known in the industry. It, it seems to pop up anytime I'm doing research on, uh, you know, some sort of hipster cocktail. And they're like, oh, and if you like this, definitely check out the Dead Rabbits versions. So it's uh, it just keeps popping up in my feed. And... It turns out that the the original owners, Jack McGarry and Sean Muldoon, who are the the two behind the Dead Rabbit Bar in New York City, they paired up with a distillery in Ireland, the, the Dublin Liberties Distillery, to create a branded Irish whiskey for the Dead Rabbit. 
And okay. uh, I ain't going to lie. As, as sad as the name Dead Rabbit makes me, uh, it's delicious. First sip out of the glass, it punched me in, in the tongue. It was... It, it's got a spice like on par with some rye, so I think you'd really enjoy it, Mark. It's an Irish whiskey that tastes kind of like a bourbon uh, because it was aged for five years in bourbon casks. Uh, so it's, it's a five-year aged whiskey. It's finished in small oak casks, and it's got a lot of kind of what I've been drinking lately. It's got some vanilla, it's got some fruit, it's got some spice, um, but it really, like, it it just kicks you one good. Uh, it's got a nice burn to it. Uh, as Mark can attest, I tend to pursue whiskeys that, like, I know it's a good whiskey if it makes the tips of my ears warm. And it sounds like the weirdest thing in the world, but... Well, you are a rabbit. I am. It works for me. It does exactly that. And very few do. Like, Three Chords Rye does it for me. Um, uh, Jameson Black Barrel does it for me. Just, there's something about a whiskey... That, that warms you from the inside all the way to your tip. And it, it, it's good. It's great. I'm drinking it over my whiskey stones right now. Uh, it's delicious. And it's got that, like, almost syrupy uh, weight on the tongue that bourbon tends to have. But it's an Irish whiskey. And it's like a deep gold color. It looks like, it looks like honey in the glass. It's amazing. Despite the name, it is amazing, and the bottle is quite pretty as well. Drinking a 10-year-old's whiskey a couple of weeks ago, now you're drinking whiskey from a dead rabbit. <laughs> when people say, I test a well. No, that actually, that sounds quite good, um, and well, I'm going to have to add that to my list as we go on here. Yeah, it, it wasn't hyper expensive either. It was in like the, the mid-40s. I think I got a bottle for like 44 bucks. It's, you know... It's not your everyday drinking whiskey. Uh, I tend to think an everyday dr drinking whiskey is like twenty bucks, you know, somewhere in there. This is definitely like a nice, a, a nice mid range occasion, um, but it's really good. Everybody, check this out. It's it seems super new because I definitely didn't notice any dead rabbits in the store last time. <laughs> no, that's generally a health code violation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, well. So I suppose it's time to get on to the topic at hand. Literature and hot takes there within. I'm so excited. I, and this was actually a really easy list for me to come up with, and I have some oh. fucking takes. See, again, we are just being total opposites. This was quite difficult for me, and I, I guess I'll just get out of the way why it was quite difficult for me. Because due to my line of work and due to my own personal tastes, probably... 98%, 99% of what I read, ex ex with the exception of comic books, of course, uh, is nonfiction. Oh, Biographies, history books, things like that. Yeah, this is a really good point. Like, we should definitely talk about, like, what where our interests lie with, with books. Well, uh, normally it's, it's nonfiction for me, but I didn't pick any nonfiction books for the simple fact is... Because really, uh, a history book or a biography or anything, in my opinion, if you say it's overrated or underrated, you're basically saying the author is overrated and underrated. And nobody wants to hear me critique other historians 
this isn't grumpy historian hour. This is the wit and whiskey. Rabbit raises so, his hand. I want to hear that. That sounds amazing. Well, that could be another episode, perhaps. Um, Mark gets this, tipsy and insults other historians. Yes. Career-ending moves, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. So on this episode of the wit and whiskey, career-ending. Uh, <laughs> career-enders in whiskey. Uh, yeah. No, but so I decided to go back, because uh, when I was younger, I did read quite a bit more fiction. So I decided to go back and try to dig out six, three, and three that are fiction and go from there. Although one one technically isn't fiction, but when we get there, I'll explain why I picked it. So, uh, yeah, that was a little bit more difficult for me, but I think it's going to be interesting. And again, we must stress, ladies and gentlemen, just because we say something is overrated here, we're not saying it's bad. True. And believe me when I tell you, just because we say something is underrated, doesn't mean it's good. Don't take our word for it. But you should take all of these as an opportunity to go explore your palate on books. Yes. Uh, it, if we rate something as overrated or underrated, that means that just go read it. Go go make your own decision. I I chose three overrated books that I really do not care for at all, but I've read all of them. I definitely enjoy conversations about them. So they are worth reading. I just don't think they're as worth reading as other things. Yeah. You know, my wife is formerly an English teacher. And so when I told her one of the books that I picked for overrated, she got a little hot with me. Um, (laughs) But it's not her list. So (laughs) here we are. Yeah. Uh, as for my interests, my interests are almost like the exact opposite of Mark's 99% fiction. Uh, I read a lot of nonfiction growing up and I just found it a sludge. Uh, I enjoy talking to people about history, but I've never really found nonfiction to really bring history to life for me. Uh, I love talking to Mark about it. I love hearing, uh, you know, something he's working on or something he's researching. And I really like taking in, you know, weird and wacky aspects of history. But when it comes to, like, you know, the Battle of Thermopylae, I I don't give a shit. I don't really want to read about it. I'd rather just hear Mark talk about it. So my taste... Well, you see... No. (laughs) So my tastes are almost all fiction. But within fiction, I... I've a heavy interest in like classic literature, you know, Dumas and Dickens and all sorts of good stuff. So I picked some, some classic fiction that I'm sure Mark will have uh, some thoughts about. Yeah. Well, but that's why we do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you have to have the yin and the yang. So, all right. Do you want to start? Give us one and then tell us if it's overrated or underrated. Yeah. We want to go back and forth over, under, over, under. Yeah, let's do that. All right, so my first... Uh, I'm going to go with overrated first. My first overrated is Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, and I am sure Annie is going to uh, <laughs> burn me at a stake for this. I, I'm not going to let her listen to this episode, but go on. <laughs> Wuthering Heights was a book, and probably still is a book, that is taught a lot in high school English, and I feel like it is one of those quintessential angsty books that is weirdly aimed at females and I don't like it. I think that the characters are trash. The writing is kind of terrible. 
there's not any decent message out of the book except, hey, let's watch these two people torture each other for 300 pages. It's not good. And uh, being forced to read it in school was... uh, It was a sludge, guys. It was terrible. And my big struggle with it is that a lot of my friends on both sides of the gender fence really enjoyed it and really liked this weird nihilistic view of the world and I was like guys this fucking sucks it's not telling me anything it's not teaching me anything about the world except that some people are garbage I I get that enough on my own time can I read something better now so Weathering Heights first overrated in my opinion not a fan well, I can certainly respect that, and uh, we'll keep the theme going. My, my first overrated is a book that I was forced to read in school, Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. You know, I could hear everyone collectively gasping, as you know, my wife did when I had told her that. And yes, it is a, a pretty telling look at the poverty in Dickensian-era England. You know, the 1830, late 1830s, early 1840s, there was a huge class divide, and it did share a lot of, uh, you know, put a, shed a lot of light on that, and that should be commended. It's just not very well written, and I know that's sacrilege to say about a Dickens book, but uh, it came out as a lot of things did back then as a serial. It came out in chapters. The whole book, it actually took over two years to be released, it started in February of 1837 and didn't end until April of 1839. And so because of that, it's choppy. It doesn't flow. It, it stops and starts. Um, I remember this was on my summer reading list one year in high school, and I found it such a dredge that I was forcing myself. I said, okay, you have to, every day you have to read three chapters. If you just read three chapters of this every day, You'll burn through it in however long. Well, some chapters would literally be less than 10 pages. Yeah. And some would be like 75. (laughs) And there was no rhyme or reason to it whatsoever. And the other thing is, and I don't know, maybe I'm just dumb. Maybe it's because I don't read a lot of nonfiction, although I read more, or fiction rather, although I read more of it back then. But, you know, they always talk about this great symbolism I never picked up on any of the real heavy symbolism he was supposedly leading. You know, like Fagin, you know, the the criminal thief was supposedly a a caricature of Satan. He just came off as a pedophile. Uh, And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe that's on me. I don't know. But I would sit in class and they would explain all this symbolism. And I was like, where are you getting all this from? I mean, to me, it's like the same argument that used to be made back when we were in high school about the Wizard of Oz being an allegory for capitalism. I'm like, guys, can we just fucking enjoy a book, please? <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, hard, no, hard pass. <laughs> but I, I will end it on a bright note. Uh, Oliver Twist does have the greatest named character, at least to a 17-year-old boy, in the history of literature. Oh. Master Bates. <laughs> and that is his actual name in the book. <laughs> it reminds me of something I meant to put on this list, but I couldn't really figure out where to put it, and I didn't want to use my honorable mention on it. But around the same time, there was a work being written by Henry Mayhew 
called London Labor and the London Poor. If you, I, I'm sure you're, you've come across it in your, your studies. I have, actually, yes. Uh, it's one of the... I think it's the only nonfiction that I own in actual, like, leather-bound copies. Like, I, I had to dig them out of eBay, like, five years ago. And uh, I really enjoy reading excerpts from London Labor and London Poor. And... Uh, like, how accurate is Oliver Twist in portraying the historical time as compared to, like, Mayhew's work? Um, well, obviously, it's not as good as Mayhew's work. But for the time and for the fact that it is, you know, supposed to be, you know, more literature, it's supposed to be more leisure reading, it was published uh, monthly in a magazine, it, it actually is pretty accurate. And it was actually pretty shocking at the time, you know, that, hey, this is what's going on. Wake up. That's amazing. And for that, it should be credited. It's just, it's a really poorly written piece of trash. It's a lot like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which I don't know if you ever read that. And no. I mean, why would you? Um, but that is famous for taking on the massive, just grotesque things that were going on in the American meatpacking industry at the turn of the 20th century. And I won't even go into some of the stuff because you will literally just vomit in, onto your iPhones. Look. But that's only maybe 100 and 120 pages in this long, meandering diatribe of uh, rampant rant against capitalism. So yes, it should be commended for bringing about the FDA and some other things, but it's still a really piece of shit book. <laughs> Much like... Uh, Oliver Twist. Fair. All right, what's your second one? All right, so my first under is uh, the book Dodger by Terry Pratchett. Okay. Uh, I think I only know maybe two other people who've actually read it. So for anybody playing the home game, Terry Pratchett, now deceased, was a rather prolific British author. Modern times, you know, not... 1830s or anything like that and he wrote the ever popular comedic fantasy series uh discworld and everybody i know who's read any terry pratchett has read a ton of discworld and has never heard of dodger i think the only other friend i recommended it to and they've read it and loved it and aj recommended it to me so i know one other person who read it before i did <laughs> oh, and I think Holly's read it too. So to Holly's credit, it's amazing. It's a great book. It's not, it's not fantasy. It's that it's just regular old, like, you know, historical fiction. And it's set in the same time as Oliver Twist, you know, written in the, you know, 1990s or 1980s, something like that. And it's just the story of like a street urchin who, you know, saves a girl and he gets to meet Henry Mayhew and Charles Dickens. And it's, this nice little like look at what was happening in the streets and this it, he's he's like a he's a trickster he's a charlatan he's you know a street urchin who you know climbs through the sewers to find coins but is also like really street smart and helps like foil this plot by a bunch of rich people to murder this young girl and it's just really fun and i i wish more people would read it so that's that's my first underrated all right i can roll with that i mean it's hard to go wrong with a terry pratchett book He's very good. So my first underrated is a book that is usually a genre I hate. It's an alternate history book. Uh, well, alternate history novel, I guess I should say. And it's from Harry Turtledove is the author. And it's How Few Remain. Ooh. 
And this is an interesting book in that it takes a lot, basically it takes a few coincidences and chances during the American Civil War and just basically tips them on their head and says, what if they didn't happen the way they happened? And then it follows a timeline. And it led to something like, oh dear Lord, I forget how many novels he's on in this series now. I want to say it's 14 or 15. I haven't read all of them. I read like the first three. Um, but the first one is the best. And basically, what I like about it is, yes, it is an alternate history book, but when you read it, it doesn't really give you a lot of the backstory. Like, it assumes that you know what the shit is that he's talking about. Oh, damn. I would need an annotated copy at that point. <laughs> so it basically, the point of divergence is September 10th, 1862, um, because that was in real life, in our timeline, where we found Lee's Special Order 191. And basically that was uh, Robert E. Lee's troop movements for 1863 and beyond. Literally a messenger had it fall out of his knapsack on a horse, and a Union cavalry stumbled across it because it was in a cigar box. And they went, oh, cool, cigars, uh, as I would do. And they opened the box, and here's the entire battle plan for 1863. Oh, wait a minute. He's going into Pennsylvania. Hold on a minute. So basically this whole series points to what would happen if we didn't recover that, which we shouldn't have, really. And, uh, you know, Abe Lincoln loses the war and becomes a radical, uh, radical labor movement leader, borderline communist. America is split into two countries, much like Germany was after World War II. The uh, Confederacy actually tries to purchase land in Mexico, which was another thing that Harry Turtledove assumes you know. Uh, the Confederacy did want to do that at some point if they had survived as a country, because that way they stretch sea to sea and they have a Pacific seaport. Uh, the North basically says, no, you can't do that, and they start up a second civil war. Wow. And you, you have interesting things like George Patton being a commander in the CSA, which isn't that big of a stretch because his great-grandfather was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, one thing leads to another. And then in the later books, they get on to like World War One, and the trenches are in America instead of over in France and things like that. So it, it does get a little crazy by the end, but especially the few, first couple books are very believable. Harry Turtledove really likes writing like pulp-style romance novel sex scenes, Oof. which is weird with historical figures. Yep. Um, there's a Mark Twain sex scene for reasons. So I don't recommend that. Nobody uh, needs that. No. And it's literally, like, if, if you follow Turtle Dev, it's become almost trolling at this point because his fans basically beg him, like, these books are great, stop it. And he's like, no, haha, you hate it, here's more. <laughs> which I can kind of appreciate. <laughs> um, but they're all pretty cheap. You could, you, know, you could pick up like the first four or five. They're often listed as Timeline 191 after Special Order 191. So um, you could usually buy the first couple uh, books in the set for like 25, 30 bucks. Nice. All right, what's your second overrated? My second overrated, I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Okay, uh, by, now. Hey, now. It's by Philip K. Dick. It was the basis for the movie Blade Runner. And I am going to completely separate the two and not make okay. any judgment on Blade Runner. Uh, I have not actually seen Blade Runner all the way through, so I cannot judge it. 
I have heard from a good number of people around me that like the movie but don't like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep that the movie has a much more satisfying ending. Yeah, I can agree with that. I do not like this book. I love science fiction. I love when science fiction is hard on itself and asks the hard questions and posits what might happen to humanity if X happens. Uh, I've been reading sci-fi since I was a nerdy little kid, and I am now a nerdy adult who still reads it. And I think there are books in the genre that have been genre-defining that have done really amazing things for the genre and set standards. iRobot by Asimov is one of those books. It's one of the only times I've ever encountered an author lay down an interesting premise and say, this is something that the world could use when X part of technology happens. And they spend one or two chapters going, wouldn't this be great? And then 17 chapters going, and here's what could go wrong with it. And I think <laughs> iRobot is a really good example of a book that handles the moral quandaries that Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep tries to handle. Uh, and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep is about a guy who's kind of a hitman for androids, and there's six androids that need to get killed, and it begs the, the question of if you couldn't tell the difference between a human and an android, what does that mean for being human? You know, what is human? What, is, uh, what does it even mean? And I really wanted to like this book. I thought it was going to present a really interesting quandary and, and provide some, some thoughts on it. Everybody I knew who had read sci-fi was like, read Electric Sheep, read Electric Sheep. It's amazing, it's amazing. And I got through like 40, 50% of the book and was like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I like where this is going. It's not really satisfying. And then I hit like the last half of the book and I was like, what the hell is this? And the book doesn't really say much. The main character has this big moral quandary and then goes, eh, whatever, and shoots all the androids anyways. Like th there's a thing with like trying to replace their electric sheep with uh, a real animal and then the animal dies and there's no real consequences of it and then he just kind of walks off and goes well my life sucks and that's the end of the book and it, I feel like it was like hey let's talk about this thing actually never mind it's not really important and nothing matters that's that fucking sucks I I, I walked in thinking it was going to be an interesting like philosophical sci-fi novel and it ended up just kind of being a, a sad depressed dystopic book so not a fan think it's overrated well yeah i mean i can't argue with that because it is pretty nihilistic and i know if you read anything i know we're separating the two but if you read anything of the production of the movie of blade runner um that was a big argument that harrison ford had with the directors um you know it was just can't we make this mean something? And they did in the movie, which is probably why it's arguably better. You know, you messed me up. See, dear listeners, believe it or not, at least for this episode, we didn't compare notes. <laughs> we didn't compare lists. And I was pretty confident in my second overrated pick that I was going to have what may be the only case in recorded history 
of a movie actually being better than the book it's based off of. To quote Dave, boom! <laughs> yes, boom indeed. But I fear there may actually be two, and I fear you may have beat me to the punch. <laughs> I'll jump in with mine now. And this is the perfect example of the book is perfectly fine. The book is very good. It's just the movie, weirdly enough, is so, so much better. And it's Christine. Stephen uh, King? Stephen King, 1983. Uh, the basic plot is in the late 70s, uh, a kid named uh, Arnie and his friend find this dilapidated Plymouth Fury out in a field. Of course, Stephen King describes it as a four-door. There were no 1958 four-door Plymouth Furies, but we'll let that go. I don't know how that got past the editors, but it did. And they find this car, and Arnie is working on it, and everybody is just creeped out by it because it's your typical rotting car in a field that, you know, litter America to this day. And he doesn't have a lot of money, and he's like, no, I'm going to fix this car up, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to have a hot rod. And, you know, his parents hate it, and Arnie's a nerd, and so he's constantly getting bullied. And slowly you find out that the car is evil. And so it starts possessing Arnie, and they start killing all of his bullies and all of his friends, and basically trying to take people out in town. And, of course, nobody could catch him because they're all, like, strange traffic accidents or hit and runs. But Christine, the car, is capable of healing herself, of rebuilding herself. So, you know, she goes and totals six cars, and then they go to the garage, and she's sitting there perfectly fine. <laughs> um, where the movie is better, in my opinion, is that they cut out a lot of the teenage angst. A lot of the book, and it's a long book, it's one of King's longer works, it's a doorstopper, is just high school drama bullshit. Like, his best friend, you know, has, like, a fast car, so Arnie wants to be like him, but he can't. And then near the end of the book, his best friend steals his girlfriend. They cut all that shit out of the movie, and it's so much better. Nice. The other major difference is, in the book, Christine is possessed by the ghost of her former owner, Roland LeBay. And he's just this stereotypical deliverance hillbilly who calls everyone shitters. In the movie, Christine is possessed by Satan, <laughs> and it's just evil. Oh, well, that's, you know, a little bit more cut to the quick. Well, it's a little bit more cut to the quick, but it makes Arnie's transformation at the end, by the end, so much more believable. Because, like, in the book, he's, like, wearing, like, wife beaters, and he has, like, gray hair, and he's basically turning into the old man. And, I mean, I get it. We're talking about a demon car that can rebuild itself and yada, yada, yada. But that really kind of broke, like, my suspension of disbelief was stretched to begin with. And that kind of broke it, like, when they talk about, like, his teeth are falling out and things. Whereas if he just, by the end of the movie, gets possessed by Satan and starts wearing black leather and cursing everybody, yeah, I can kind of believe that a little bit more. Fair. Um, it also gave what was a very young me one of the greatest movie scenes of all time. Uh, when Arnie finally realizes that Christine is sentient and can heal herself, he's standing there in front of the car and he just says, show me. And you hear like all this metal crunching and cracking and the camera pans around and when the scene started, the car is just totaled. And when it pans back around, it's sitting there and has a much later engine, but a big 
uh, Dodge 413 race engine with the cross ram and two fours, and it's all hotted, hot rotted out and just sitting there. And when I was a little kid, I thought that was the coolest fucking movie scene on the face of the earth. Of course <laughs> like that just did. made that movie for me. So book good, movie so much better. Fair. That's fair. I have not read a lot of Stephen King because I started with it. Uh, oh, that's a heavy one to start with. Yeah, and that I, I, I'm not much of a horror fan, and that book kind of burned me on some Stephen King. So uh, I've only read like three or four books, and it's been a slow descent into just putting a Stephen King aside. But I, I have a lot of respect for the guy, and I, I wish I liked the horror genre more than I do. All right, give us your next one. All right, my second underrated book. And all of my underrated are one-word books. Uh, my second underrated is Jumper by Stephen Gould. You ever ever read this? I haven't read it. I've heard of it, but I have not read it. It is oh, a sleeper, bro. Jumper was a movie. I do not know what year. I'm going to look it up real quick. And the movie wasn't wonderfully loved. It's 2008. And the book came out much before that. Uh, Stephen Gould's been on the scene for a while, and uh, Jumper was 1992. Yeah, first edition, 92. It's a really good book that has a really simple concept, and it I love it because it kind of examines the whole question of what what would somebody do if they became a superhero or got a superpower overnight and there was no mentor and no book on the subject and they had to figure it out themselves and figure out how to protect their loved ones. It's amazing. And the whole concept is the dude can teleport. That's it. There isn't anything else that's special about him. He comes from kind of a a shit upbringing a little bit. Uh, He's got a girlfriend, but he just... He wakes up one day and he can teleport and he has to like figure it out on his own. And it sounds kind of like a derpy concept, but it's so well written. It doesn't go overboard on the teen angst. It's a lot of like him dealing with personal trauma and trying to figure out this superpower on the side. And the movie doesn't do it justice. This is the exact opposite of, you know, Do Androids Dream or Christine where the movie was just, we don't need to talk about the movie. It's over there. It doesn't, we don't need to talk about it. But the book's amazing. It's it's a really good, like, snapshot of how good, really focused sci-fi can be. It's not a space opera. It's not a giant epic. It's not set in space. It's, you know, set in the 90s. It's a kid who gets a superpower and is afraid of, you know, the government, like most 80s and 90s movies seem to be. Uh, So highly recommend it. It, It's a sleeper. There's a whole series. I think there's four or five books in the series now. Um, But he's a fantastic writer, and Jumper is amazing. There you go. All right. What about you? What's your second... I think we're on your second under. We are on the second under, and this is uh, my only nonfiction pick, and possibly the only nonfiction pick of the evening. I think so. It's called Deadly Obsessions, Life and Death in Formula One. And it's by Dr. Philip Shirley, who is a psychologist, 
I always get them wrong, psychologist or psychiatrist. He's, he's, he's one of the two. I don't remember which one, <laughs> but he's a brain doctor. And the whole premise of the book is he studies numerous drivers mentally, basically. He analyzes them, and it explains why, when the risk is so high, well, was so high. The book came out in the early part of 2000. It was written in 97, 98, 99, and came out in February of the year 2000. So right before Earnhardt got killed. Um, and he basically explains, you know, why you still go and do this and, you know, why you sit down in a car and why you have this part of your brain that just switches off and how if you're at a race and someone gets killed, you can come back an hour later for the restart. And it sold very poorly because it reads like a medical journal just with names that you might recognize if you follow motorsports at all. It had a very small print run. I had to pay a fortune for a very badly used copy. This was five or six years ago. Now, longer than that. It was probably actually about 10 years ago. Now that I think about it, it was right after I moved into my house. There's only one copy currently on Amazon. It's a used paperback, and they want $925 for it just to give you some idea of it. But it was very interesting to me. It helped me understand, you know, where I was coming from, helped me to be a better driver. I was still racing at the time. And when I started dating the wife, she read it, you know, just because it talks about, you know, how to deal with family that's, you know, into this. Because I would have my, my fair share of accidents and come home all beat up. And, you know, I've been at races where a guy, three, four cars in front of you, goes barrel rolling over the fence, and they cut him out, and they put him on the life flight helicopter, and half an hour later, they tell you, strap in. And you just, you don't even think about it sometimes. You just, boom, the light switch goes on, and you go. And so it basically answers the question of, what the fuck is wrong with me? <laughs> it's a brilliant read. I had to highlight a lot of stuff and look a lot of stuff up later, like medical terminology and things. But that's never the worst thing in the world. So if you can get your hands on a copy I, and you have any interest at all in racing or just the human mind, it's a great read. Yeah, I'm looking it up on eBay now. It looks like there's one for like 13 bucks. Good. Go buy it. If you're listening to this, go buy now. Yeah, definitely. So if you're interested in that, that kind of thing, I don't generally like visceral kind of stuff, but uh, I'm going to take Mark's opinion here and just accept that it's a good book. Yeah, they actually had uh, one chapter of the book is an interesting interview with Mika Hakkinen, and this was coming off, this was only like two years after he had a very bad accident in Australia where they actually had to perform a tracheotomy on him on the side of the track. Nope, zero out of ten. And he explains that in some detail. <laughs> so that's, you know, be ready for that if you pick up a copy. I'm good. I'm good. But 13 bucks is good. I paid quite a bit more. I want to say I paid about 50 or 60 for mine. I mean, that was that's a long fair. time ago. I, uh, I was looking through my book collection today to prep for this episode a little bit more, and uh, I had forgotten that I had some rare books in my collection that I would be embarrassed to share how much I paid for them. Oh, well, God, if we want to go into some of my history books, my first editions from the, you know, 1850s, 1860s, oh, God, yeah, it's it's incredibly embarrassing. <laughs> I have one shelf that if I were to sell, I could pretty much buy any new car I wanted. Yeah. And that's, that's not even a boast. That's just the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always uh, really excited to visit rare bookshops uh, that have stuff like behind glass because then I don't feel bad for how much I've paid for some books in my collection. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that you know, and if... 
eBay is another great thing. I mean, you know, I, I look at some of the older history books I have, and I'm like, man, I paid too much. And I go on eBay, and I'm like, eh, <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> it's like, mine's a lot nicer than that one. That's fair. <laughs> so, you know. All right, so my last overrated is, uh, all right, if we take Wuthering Heights to kind of be that that classic kind of angsty book geared towards females, one of the angsty classic novels that seems to be geared towards uh, the male gender is Moby Dick, Herman Melville. Uh, I was going to do Moby Dick. I'm glad I didn't. I think it is highly overrated. And I grew up reading books like The Swiss Family Robinson, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the you know great expectations and um why can't i think of you know three musketeers the count of monte cristo things like that and and i i love classic literature even when it rambles and it gets a little hard to to read sometimes i i love it i i always come away feeling like i've given my brain a good workout when i've completed a, a classic novel and moby dick i i got nothing out of i mean when you get outside of that angsty obsession with a novel that has a cannibal ooh cannibal it's just (laughs) like I get what they're doing with it but you know I kind of like the Ron Swanson quote from Parks and Rec right no it's just a book about a man who hates a whale yeah and I like I feel like I came to Moby Dick too late. And by too late, I mean that I had already read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. And if you've read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, you have gotten a really good glimpse about the the trials and tribulations of a life at sea and what could possibly go on in your psyche if you are kind of a megalomaniac who is living his life under the sea and you see it as your kingdom that you own and there's just this really really great story arc that the the captain nemo goes through in Twenty Thousand leagues and, and you get to kind of observe it through a really good solid narrator and after you read Twenty Thousand leagues moby dick just feels like I, I don't know. It feels kind of pandering and nihilistic and ultimately doesn't really say much. I didn't like it when I re- had to read it in school. I remember having many, many an argument with my English teacher. Just he was astounded that I didn't like it. And I'm like, this is why. Like, I, I have no interest in a man who is obsessed with a fish. Like, it's just not... It's not interesting, and it doesn't say anything. Like, I doesn't, at the end of the book, I think the whale sinks the boat or something. Like, it's... Yes. And, again, if you're doing literary analysis and you look at it as, you know, a, a metaphor for not enjoying what you have and pursuing an impossible goal and the cost that can have your life, sure, there's probably some things to learn there. There are other books that do it way better. Don't bother with Moby Dick. Well, there are. And I think that's... See, I can't argue with anything you've just said. I didn't hate Moby Dick. I had to read it for school as well. I didn't hate it. But at the same time, it's certainly not on you know any of my top ten lists. I certainly have no overwhelming urge to read it again. 
But I think much in the same way that you were exposed to Jules Verne first, and that sort of ruined you, I was exposed to comic books first. And so the idea of, you know, chasing a white whale, that's just Luther and Superman. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, all right, you know, and it just, so it didn't really affect me either way. But yeah, if, if you want to know about, you know, throwing your life away to chase a cause, just read comic books. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many story arcs, no matter what your fancy is. Just, just I mean, everybody comics. knows who Wolverine is. Yes. <laughs> Facts. All right, let's, uh, let's round this out. What's your last over? My last over is actually a two-parter, and this is when you're going to hear DJ scream, because I'm doing two Star Wars books. Uh, I had to dig deep to when I was in junior high and high school and was big into the expanded universe, which yeah, will always um, be the expanded universe. Yeah, two legends. T- tell me what your two legends are there, buddy. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, it's actually the Hand of Thrawn duology. Now, here's the thing. Timothy Zahn is one of the greatest authors in the EU. No one's going to argue this. Grand Admiral Thrawn is probably the greatest original character with the possible exception of Mara Jade. But I always root for the bad guys, so I go with the Admiral. Yep, you certainly do. (laughs) These books suck. (laughs) And there's two main reasons why. Number one, it goes back to what we were talking about in our, you know, Toxic Fandom episode. Much like episode one, these books are about politics. And even on the surface of it, it sounds like it's going to be about good politics. The Empire, or what's left of it, is going to surrender to the New Republic. They're going to form peace. Finally, the war is going to be over. Cool. That's a neat storyline. You then have 500 pages of the trade negotiations. <laughs> That's not cool at all. You also have Grand Admiral Thrawn showing up. Oh, that's awesome. I don't know how he got out of being, you know, dead and killed in all those other novels, but cool. I can't wait to see what this happens. Oh, it's an actor wearing blue body paint and red contact lint oh for fuck's sake now now let's <sighs> let's be clear we're not gonna yuck any yums here if you want to read novels that are full of political intrigue yes go ahead read them yeah i i have yet to meet somebody that loved political intrigue in novels but if you were gonna if you want to reach out fan and say yeah i love those kinds of books and here's some examples like uh, anything after book three of the Wheel of Time series uh, had a very hard time reading it. Um, yeah. But, but if that's your thing, like reach out to us, let us know, tell, recommend something, and we'll, uh, you know, if you reach out, we'll, we'll, you know, toss you a, a shout out next episode, and and we'll we'll uh, throw some some uh, mea culpas in there, and we'll recommend one of your 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 picks. Yeah, book two gave us the the. Cacamus document, which was a thing that they tried to cause a civil war with. It was more political intrigue. But there was one good thing out of this duology. We'll end on a high note, because we don't want to just shit all over it completely. Uh, Timothy Zahn's one condition for writing this book, books, uh, was at the end, Mary Jade and Luke had to get engaged. And that set up that whole arc, which wasn't a bad one. That's fair. Um, so there you go. It, the two books, they're uh, Specter of the Past and Vision of the Future. 
I'm a big fan of the EU, but just no. You know, can't recommend. Uh, if anybody does want something really good to read in the EU, uh, I can personally recommend uh, the Darth Bane trilogy. I don't know if you've ever read those, but the, the, it's... I haven't uh, read those. If you like bad guys, you like the Sith, you want to learn more <laughs> about their history, the Darth Bane trilogy establishes the Sith rule of two. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I think you'd really enjoy it. I probably would. All right, give us your last under, and we'll, we'll take it home. All right, my last under, another single word title, is the book Fool by Christopher Moore. It's not, it's just straight up fiction. It's not even fantasy. And if you haven't read Christopher Moore, I mean, get off your ass, guys. Like his, his stuff is hilarious. Uh, I always recommend people start with The Stupidest Angel. It's a really funny Christmas book that has a really great twist right at the end. Uh, but Fool is my personal favorite. It has a sequel... And I never remember what the sequel is called. I've read it. It's it's good. It's just not, you know, it doesn't hold the same place in my heart. But Fool is a retelling of the play King Lear from the perspective of the king's jester. Okay. So anybody who's a Shakespeare fan, I definitely recommend this. The sequel to this book was released in 2014. Uh, it's called The Merchant of Venice. Oh, no, The Serpent of Venice. Sorry, it was based on The Merchant of Venice by Shakespeare. Uh, so Fool was published in 2009, and it's just great. that The book starts with one of the best disclaimers telling you it's a body tale. And, uh, it's all from the perspective of Pocket, uh, who is the court jester, and it it's, it's a what-if story. I tend to love retellings of Shakespeare that do something interesting with the ending. Another example would be Joker by Rinalfo, which nobody's ever heard of. I picked it up in a, a like a, I don't know, a flea market sale once, and I don't know anybody else who's ever read anything by Rinalfo. Fool takes King Lear to its inevitable end, but rather than, you know, King Lear, which is a tragedy... And it's about the downfall and, and slow descent into madness of this kingdom's king. You get to... It, they, they kind of watch the king go crazy, and then they sidestep the tragedy and reintroduce Cordelia back into the story. And it's amazing. The pocket is hilarious and sarcastic and is single-handedly trying to keep the kingdom together while it's falling apart. It's got a lot of really great one-liners. Uh, it's got a lot of really good quotes. It's it's just hilarious. I highly recommend it. Anybody who is an English teacher or taught English is probably going to fry me at a stake for this. Uh, I know Shakespeare <laughs> is sacrosanct and thou shalt not touch, but uh, I definitely prefer Fool over King Lear. Well, hey, I'll take some of the heat off you here. I enjoyed the Boz Lerman Romeo and Juliet. There, I said it. Nice. It was a good flick. I, I right. love anything that turns a tragedy into a comedy. Yeah, well, it pretty much did. <laughs> All right. I, I didn't plan it this way, but we'll end on probably the most underrated Cl Tom Clancy novel of all. The prob although probably the one that everybody's heard of and they don't realize it actually was a book. Rainbow Six. I, I have never read it. I've played one of the games. 
It is a fantastic book. It's very long. It's about a thousand pages uh, if you have the unabridged copy. Uh, it came out in 1998, and it is about the titular uh, anti-terrorist team. And they're called Rainbow, of course, because they are from all these different countries in the world. Uh, it takes place in the Jack Ryan universe, although Jack Ooh. Ryan isn't actually in the book. He's mentioned as president, but he doesn't actually show up. Tom Clark, or John Clark, rather, who, who's one of Tom Clancy's uh, big uh, recurring characters in the Ryan verse, he is the main character. He is the Rainbow Six. He's their intelligence officer. It has a very long, complicated plot that deals with eco-terrorists and then a side plot. Basically, eco-terrorists are trying to develop a super plague, and then there's a side plot of a guy who just likes to hire terrorists to go and take hostages. And so he gets an old ex-KGB agent named Popov and says, hey, you know, go get all your terrorist friends and attack this place and attack this place. And every time they do, Rainbow shows up and kills them all. And uh, finally, at the end, you realize that they're to distract from the fact that at the 2000 Sydney Olympics, the book isn't dated at all, they're going to release this eco-plague on the world and kill all life on the face of the earth. And of course, Rainbow gets there just in time and stops the plague. And if you're reading it, you're, you know, when all the ends sort of tie together, you're like, oh, okay, of course. Uh, but really, at the end, it's almost like, you know, a comic book or a Bond film. I mean, you have these, you know, classic supervillains with hidden lairs and jungle bases and eco plagues. And you have to have these international secret agents to show up and, and take them out. But number one, it's Tom Clancy, so the way he wrote it is actually really believable. But number two, the book hasn't aged well. So all the radical ideas in the book about you know an international anti-terrorism team being able to go across borders and take liberties, all those radical ideas in the 90s, they're just like, Tuesday shit today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we kind of read it today and we're like, huh, okay. You know, and they, they make mention of, you know, oh, there's never been a terrorist attack like this on American soil and there's never been a terrorist attack like this. And so it hasn't aged well. Um, it is a fantastic read, though, and I recommend it. You mentioned the video games. Uh, the first one is a pretty faithful recreation of the book until about 60% of the way in. <laughs> and the reason for that is the game got finished first. <laughs> That's how long the book was. He wasn't done writing it yet. Wow. But if you ever have a chance to play the first game, it was PC only. And it's basically almost like a point and click. You pick your team, you pick their weapons, you actually have a map, and you click point by point by point by point their route into each building, and then they go and they simulate the plan. You actually don't control anything. And when a character is dead, they are dead. There are no respawns. Uh, so it was a frustratingly difficult game, but it was a, a great game. I had it from my old Gateway 2000 oh, uh, wow. back in 1998. So Rainbow Six, go, go read now. 
Yes, please do. I grew up with a dad that loved Tom Clancy and a mom that loved Danielle Steele. So um, <laughs> uh, I am intimately familiar with some of his stuff. My personal favorite is his novelization of Splinter Cell. Yes. So I think that brings us to our honorable mentions. It does. Uh, you want to go first? All right. Um, it, it's another duology, but I will just read you the titles, and then you can guess immediately whether you think you know they're over or under. Uh, they are by Andre de Goulême, <laughs> and uh, they are How to Rule the World, a handbook for the aspiring dictator, and How to Be a Super Genius. Amazing. Uh, and they are highly underrated. They're also out. They're another set that's out of print, but they're they're a lot cheaper. And the art is fantastic. That's great. My honorable mention is I I recommend this book to everybody who's ever read two books, <laughs> because uh, usually <laughs> they'll be able to keep up with it. it. It's a great book. It's very accessible. It's hauntingly beautiful. It's called The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. It's definitely fantasy. It, it's kind of urban fantasy set in like early 1800s kind of deal it's about a circus that travels around mysteriously and only opens its gates at midnight and it's just full of wonder and myth and mysticism and it is ultimately about a magic competition between two immortal beings who train up and send proxies into a competition where the two proxies have to duel to the death. But the duel isn't like a magic duel where you're flinging fireballs. It's it's a competition until one of them gives out. And it's some heavy shit. But it is, right. but it's it's amazing. And the story ends in a really beautiful way. And there are side characters that get caught up. I think it's probably one of the very few books I have ever found and read that deals well with magic and mysticism and how that kind of thing would impact the characters that get swept up in its story. Like, there are a ton of characters who are not magic at all and are just caught up in the circus, and it, you know, it has deep and abiding impacts on their lives, and it's really, really good. So I can't recommend it enough. Erin Morgenstern is relatively fresh to the fantasy scene. Uh, she just released her second book last year. It's called The Starless Sea. Just go check her out. Uh, her writing is fantastic, some of the best writing I've ever read. Well, there you have it. Yeah, I think that closes out our amazing topic this week. Man, I really want to just keep talking about books. I There are so many <laughs> science fiction and fantasy books I wanted to recommend and, and talk about and some deep cuts and some common series and all sorts of great stuff. Uh, I mean, I have a literal library at my house, so uh, <laughs> there's that. But unfortunately, dear listeners, we are at time this week, and we just want to thank you all for taking the time. We are running a little bit long. I think our episodes are generally going to end around the the hour 10, hour 15 mark now. I think we've settled into kind of a good uh, a good rapport. But Just more of us to love, baby. Exactly, exactly. But thank you so much for listening. And uh, if you get a chance, we'd love if you could subscribe. We are out there on Spotify. We're out there on Apple Podcasts. 
Uh, Mark, how's the Podbean uploads going? Well, we have a little bit more on, but unfortunately we've hit our upload cap for now currently. Uh, so we have to decide whether or not we're going to extend that or what we're going to do. But they're, they're out. A bunch of them are out there. Five of them, six of them are out there. And then hopefully, uh, depending on how it goes, we're going to have more. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And we've got a website. We're online at thewitandwhiskeycast.com. We're on Facebook and Instagram at The Wit and Whiskey Cast. We are on Gmail at thewitandwhiskeycast at gmail.com. If you want to recommend some whiskeys for us to try, uh, you know what? If, if, if somebody emails in and tells me to pick up a terrible whiskey, I will try it. I will drink it. I'll review it on this podcast. Do it. Do it now. Send him all the terrible whiskeys. <laughs> right? And so we're always looking forward to hearing from our fans. Mark kind of heads up the Facebook. I head up the Instagram. If you want to reach out to us, uh, we're always willing to chat with, with any fans. Uh, we're always looking to try on new things, try out new topics. So just remember that wit is W-I-T. Uh, it has no H in it. And whiskey does have an E. So on top of that, we just want to make sure we thank Nuno Henry Silva for our awesome intro and outro music. Uh, we, we love, love you, Nuno. man. He's, he's amazing. And we're going to make sure to keep sending you to a SoundCloud in our show notes. We're, we're looking uh, to do some fun stuff with season two. We're not sure when that cutoff is going to be. But we definitely want to start having some guests on to talk about some things that they're passionate about. And, and uh, we definitely want to grab Nuno for at least one episode. Oh, hell yeah. Mark, what do, you, what do we want to do next week? I don't know. F- fling some shit at me and we'll see what we come up with. Am I flinging shit at you? You flinging shit at me? I think you're flinging shit at me. I'm flinging shit at you? Okay. Let's go with coffee versus tea. <laughs> comic books. And we can narrow that down during the week. That could be a little fun debate, though. We could do DC versus Marvel. Because mm-hmm. we know where we fall on the respective fence. Yeah, you're wrong and I'm right. <laughs> See, we've said it already. Or do we want to do... Uh, and this one would be fun because I think we'd have to get together. How did how we met? Ooh. How we first got together? Yeah, you know, that could be a lot of fun, kind of um, going full circle. I kind of feel like we should save that to close out the season. Okay, I can. That, that's a good point. Yeah, so so if we if we think comic books, coffee versus tea... They're both really good tub. Do we want to do DC versus Marvel or coffee versus tea? Uh, uh, we keep talking about comic books, but we just did books. What if we did coffee versus tea next week? Okay, I love talking about coffee. <laughs> I love talking about tea. There you go. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, listeners. Again, check us out. Subscribe. If you could give us that rating on iTunes, that really helps us get up and, uh, and get noticed a little bit more. Hey, thank you to whoever gave us the five-star review on iTunes. It won't let me see your name, but this is your shout-out. And if I can find your name, you'll get a shout-out. We got one, and it wasn't us. Yeah, email us or message us online at the Wit and Whiskey cast, and we will give you a shout-out in the next episode to thank you for for the rating. That that kind of floored us. So thank you so much, and until next time, cheers. Salud. Salud.